As we begin this morning, let us pray. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own goodness, but in your all-embracing love and mercy. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table, but it is your nature always to have mercy. So feed us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, that we may forever live in him and he in us. Amen. Welcome to the worship of God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. The peace of Christ be with you. Our help is in the name of the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Grace to you and peace from God, our creator, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you feel lost, you are not lost to God. If you feel excluded, you are not excluded by God. If you feel that there is no hope for you, we are not hopeless in God's eyes. If you are stuck in the darkness and have forgotten how to recognize the reality of the light, you are welcome here today as we celebrate the God whose light is not only real, but also permanent. No darkness has ever been able to extinguish it, ever. Come, let us worship the Lord.
In the Lord Jesus Christ, we propose to celebrate together with the help of God the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this Lord's Day. We come to the table to commune with our Lord. We come in awe and reverence, for the place where we stand is holy ground. Here the Lord offers us the manna of life. If we are to experience this celebration with our Lord and be nourished by his Spirit, let us examine ourselves first, then eat the bread and drink from the cup. The benefit is great if with penitent hearts and living faith we receive the Lord's Supper. Let us acknowledge our sin before our merciful God with full intention of amending our lives. Let us make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done to others. Let us forgive those who have offended us as we ourselves have been forgiven. All children of the covenant be reconciled with one another and then come joyfully to the banquet so that you may experience assurance of God's pardon and strengthening of your faith. Let us confess before God our brokenness in the words of the prayer of confession. Gracious God, many of us, some of the time at least, are precisely those people whom John challenged in his letters. We are people who love darkness more than we love light. We prefer to stumble and stub our toes as opposed to living in the light that both reminds us of God's love and at the same time leaves us no excuses for choosing the wrong paths. Thank you for your untiring efforts to pull us toward the well-lighted pathways. Hear the good news. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Thanks be to God.
having confessed our sin and been assured of pardon, of God's pardon of our sin, let us join in expressing our faith using the law of God. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not testify falsely against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. As we come to the reading of God's word, let us pray. Lift up your hearts. Let us lift them to the Lord our God. Guide us, O Lord, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first lesson this morning comes to us from Jeremiah 31, verse 17 through 14. In this text, the prophet tells us that God is gathering all God's people together. Hear now the word of the Lord. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, Save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor, together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water, in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I have become a father to Israel." And Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall become like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will give the priests their fill of fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes to us from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. In this passage, John tells us of grace and truth that come through Jesus Christ. Hear now the word of God. Christ was in the world, and the world came into being through him. 
Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From, this, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we read the Old Testament passage, it was a beautiful parallel to what we typically do as we begin every new year. It was a call to remember that when God comes to reign, when God comes to redeem his people, it's time for a party. It's time for everybody to dance and to drink and to eat and be merry, for God indeed is good. You shall be satisfied, the prophet says, with the bounty that the Lord gives to you. What a wonderful thing for us as God's people to know as we begin this new year, 2011. Before we know any of its challenges or its, its struggles, we know that as we begin the year, we begin it with God's blessing and God's desire for our best. This is Epiphany Sunday. And what I would like to do to you, for you today is to introduce you to someone very special. The word epiphanio in Spanish, and comes from the Latin epiphanies, is a word that asks us to recognize someone's dignity, someone's identity. I'm going to teach you a little Spanish. <clears throat> when you want to present someone to another person, Okay, the polite way to do so in Spanish is to say quisiera presentarle a, and then you say the person's name. Try that with me. Quisiera presentarle a. Okay. So when you meet some of our Latin friends in the service, between services or after the service, and you want to introduce someone to them. That is what you would say. Now, if you want to introduce yourself, it's very easy. Quisiera presentarle a... The same thing. Exactly the same words. Okay? So, quisiera presentarle a Jesus Christ. The greatness of God is most clearly displayed... In Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The book of John is almost like, structured like, a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation. It is extremely different 
from what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is nothing of the nativity in the gospel according to John. It's as though nothing happens until John the Baptist shows up in the scene. John begins the gospel with a very clear and succinct statement of what he is going to prove to you as you read through the rest of his gospel. He says in the first 14 verses, this word of God, who was with God and is God, is going to demonstrate to you through his life and death and resurrection and ascension that he is in fact God. And that is John's purpose. That is why all of these very powerful symbols of light and dark and spirit and flesh are completely absorbed into the dialogue, into the, the, the narrative of this book of John. The glory of the gospel, this good news that we are given, is only made evident in Jesus Christ. Without Christmas, without the birth of Jesus Christ, without Jesus, there is no good news. That's why Jesus' question to his disciple in Matthew 16 is so important. He says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now the question is doubly crucial in our own day because no one is as popular in the United States at least as Jesus. And not every Jesus, unfortunately, is the real Jesus. There's the liberal Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past in therapy, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There is the Tea Party Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges for family values and owning firearms and for the gold standard. After all, it was a gift he got at his nativity. Then there's the liberal Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing more and more and more and more money. There's a Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. And then there's the open-minded Jesus, who drinks <clears throat> or who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except, of course, for people who are not as open-minded as he or she is. There's the jock Jesus, yes, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of every Super Bowl. And then there's the martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There's the gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot, wearing a sash, while looking very German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. Then there's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, 
and buy a boat. Then there's the spiritual Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual liturgy and music. Then, of course, there's the platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. But there's always the revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick to, the, stick to it, man, and blame things on, of course, the evil system. For some, there is the guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. And then there is the lover Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret places. And for the good, intelligent, rational folks, there is the good example Jesus, who shows you how to help people and change the planet, become a better you by only thinking differently. But then you come to the Jesus that John presents. There's Jesus Christ, the anointed, the son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the gold of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good, good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. This Christ that John presents to us is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. But that is not all. This Jesus Christ that John presents is God incarnate. Incarnate, again, from the Latin, meaning incarnate. Carne machada, chili con carne, flesh, infleshed. It is God enfleshed who we call Jesus the Christ. Those beginning words and those ideas about the different Jesus I borrowed from another Reformed pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung. A conservative theologian in some respects, but very centered and biblical theologian nonetheless. And I did so because it's important for us to understand this whole idea that Jesus is not just a projection of our imagination that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God incarnate. But how can that be? How do we enter into that mystery? What does that look like? What does that feel like? 
When Christ took the form of a human, writes Stephen Smith, he set aside his rights as God. In other words, all of Christ's time on earth, he was always God-like. When he was tried in Samaria, he was all-powerful. When he was asking questions in the temple, he was already all-knowing. And when he was present in a particular place, he was at the same time omnipresent. It is simply that he made a choice not to take hold of what always was and always will be his, namely his godlike properties. Imagine, if you will, that you are visiting a hospital and you can't find a parking space in the garage. So you park way out in the back and now you're lost. You stop another driver in the lot to ask directions and he kindly says that he will just park beside you and walk with you to where you need to be in the hospital. Now let us just suppose that as you get to the front of the hospital, you find out that this man, who's actually the chief surgeon of the hospital, and as you near the door, he adds, oh yes, and right here, this is my parking space. He had a superior advantage because of his status. He had a privilege because of who he was. However, in deference to your needs, he did not take his rightful parking spot but walked with you the whole way. So here's the question. As he was walking with you to the hospital entrance, did did he stop being a doctor? Was he no longer the chief surgeon? No. Did he have a parking place? Of course. He had all these things, and at the time could have laid hold of all of these things and used them, But for your sake, he just chose not in that particular moment to do so. Now that might be a very thin metaphor, but it is in fact a very clear example of what Christ did in this enfleshment, this incarnation. You see, the incarnation was not just an event at Bethlehem on Christmas. The incarnation was the moment-by-moment choice of Jesus Christ to lay down his privileges, his rights as God, and to acquiesce to ungrateful sinners like you and me every second of every day in order to bring you to a place of healing and wholeness and peace. John is going to go on and tell you that what this Jesus did when he came as a man was to bring you a gift. A gift that we typically use as our metaphor for Christmas when we share gifts. Not only did the magi, the astrologers or wise men from the East, bring gifts to Jesus, but Jesus himself becomes the gift to us and later will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit as we're told in Acts chapter 2. Giftedness and the understanding of Christ as a gift to us is, I think, very important because we have a tendency to be like children on Christmas Day who get down to the Christmas tree and see all their presents and they begin to unravel them and unwrap them and unpack them and 
after oodles of wrapping paper and ribbons are strewn across the floor and every gift under the tree is unwrapped, turns to their parents and says, is that all? Unfortunately, that's how we are. Christmas tells us God comes incarnate to redeem us, to save us, to make us godlike, and we say, Is that all? Isn't he supposed to make us rich or famous or give us what we want? Isn't he somehow supposed to allow us to manipulate him and do what we want him to do? No. You see, this Jesus that we worship and serve is in fact one of us, but never fails or stops or ceases to be God. You can't mess with God. You can't manipulate God. You can't play games with God. Because unfortunately, God always wins. And Jesus knows that. That's why he's willing to lay it all aside. That's why he's willing to come and go to the cross. Because he knows in the end, there's a resurrection. There is an ascension, and there is a glory beyond what any of us can even imagine. Today, as we come to the table, we come to simple elements of juice and wine and bread. We come recognizing that we are people in need of this Christ who John presents to us. Someone that we can count on to be there for us in the middle of anything that happens to us or around us. Strength for our struggles, guidance in our confusion, help in our need. There is told that during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, a hard worker in one of the camps, or one of the work camps, desired to celebrate Christmas by participating in communion. And unfortunately could not do that publicly in a way that declared himself a Christian because that would be, of course, the beginning of the end. So he approached his supervisor and asked, could he have some time off from work since it was Christmas, of course, and the guard gave him permission and warned him not to tell the warden. The old man walked into the, a gully right outside the gate of the camp, and he built a small fire and began to celebrate Christmas. A few minutes later, the friendly guard saw the warden headed straight for the old man, and he hurried over to warn the old prisoner, the old worker, just in time to see him sipping something from a chipped cup and eating a bite of bread he had broken off. When the warden arrived, all he saw was a worker and a guard huddled by a small fire. But the prisoner had completed his Christmas celebration, you see, not with a banquet or with sweets, not with elaborate bowing or liturgy or words, but with a cold cup and a cold crust of bread with communion. His celebration of Christmas demanded communion. 
and he got it. The birth of God's Son would leave us cold, you see, if not for the death of Jesus. Without this table to remind us of why he came and what he did and why we love him and why we worship him. Unwrapping the gifts on Christmas Day is absolutely meaningless. Our awe during the Advent and Christmas season is not that he came into the world, but that he came to redeem us. This table seals our redemption. Thanks be to God.